0: An hour of truth for the battered but proud people of the Empire State, from the financial and entertainment epicenter of New York City, to the sleeping and empty small cities and towns of upstate, which once bustled with manufacturing, mining, and farming. We all know from inspiration, history, and nature, we deserve a return to the success and growth of generations past, a birthright being squandered by corruption in Albany. And the depredations of an insecure, scheming mountebank posing as governor who loathes both us and himself. As liberty beckoned to enslaved peoples behind the Iron Curtain via American broadcasts after World War II, we now say believe, rise, and join us. Welcome to Radio Free in New York. Alright, welcome to Radio Free New York. I'm
1: Kevin Wilson, your host for the day. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're doing a pre-recorded episode, so I uh, can't, can't see your comments quite yet, but I, I will be happy to reply to stuff after the show. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Free New York, here on WYSL. And of course, thank you for joining us down the line, too, at WACK out in New York, and WENY, the Patriot down in the southern tier. It's Friday. It's Fake News Friday. Uh, and, you know, on Fridays, I love to bring in libertarians, uh, libertarian commentators, and guests and thinkers from all around the country where I can, and just uh, getting that perspective on the liberty movement. And uh, today I brought in uh, Reed Coverdale, uh, who I, I first saw on Twitter as a naturalist capitalist. And then I saw you had a show. I saw you have, uh, you know, uh, candidates on your show, and you're talking to, to, to libertarians, and you're trying to the spread libertarian ideas and connect that with broader audiences which i love because you know that's that's part of what i do too i try not to beat people over the head with the ideology just just talk about policy and things and you know how do we how do we make a better life for ourselves so but before we get to our uh, head of ourselves too much though uh, read tell us about yourself where are you
0: yeah so i was uh, born and raised in new hampshire i live in utah right now i'm a truck driver um and i grew up as a pretty uh, religious conservative christian um and once i left the house um my politics and my religion both started getting bombarded with uh things in life that i hadn't really thought about growing up and they started to make me rethink my values rethink who i was and uh, i went all around the country i went to all 50 states i had jobs in a few different states I Worked work in colorado worked in arizona um And just meeting different people, hearing different ideas brought me down a different avenue. And uh, the way I approach everything in life is, um, you know, I decide my uh, position on an issue based on what I live through and what I see. I feel like a lot of people try to choose an ideology that sounds good to them, and then they'll do everything they can to make sure that the rest of their life falls in line with their ideology where I'm the total opposite. I feel like if you want a realistic ideology, it should be from what you've seen, from what you've experienced, from what you've heard other people say. And, uh, you know, then you have proof that your ideas work and that they make sense. Uh, so I became a libertarian through a lot of different ways. Um, but mostly it was from being at work and realizing that more laws, more rules, more safety rules, more environmental regulations, they actually don't do anything to uh, protect what they say they're there to protect. You know, the safety rules, a lot of them make the job more tedious and harder to get done and uh, give you more exposure to things over a longer period of time. The environmental laws, they make you have to, bring more equipment into a swamp or, you know, uh, move more dirt somewhere and they end up causing more trouble. So it was just this idea of a few people deciding how a lot of other people should do their job. Uh, it really doesn't work. (laughs) Um, and so that, that was like the first venue that pushed me toward my new way of thinking. Uh, and then actually this last year I worked on, um, Tulsi Gabbard's campaign in the Democratic primary. Uh, And when I got involved with that, I just realized how corrupt and horrible the two party system is and uh, all the blockading that's done. And, (laughs) you know, I I just, uh, after she dropped out and the coronavirus hit and we saw the bipartisanship of Congress to pass the CARES Act and screw all of us over and give all our money to the top 1%. I realized, okay, it's time I need to start doing something. You know, I worked on this campaign a little bit, but uh, I didn't agree with Tulsi on a lot of things. And um, now I can make my own platform. I can tell people what I think about what's going on because I see a lot of people have YouTube shows and they're not very well informed. They're just spewing whatever they heard from the latest independent media uh, personality. And I said, okay, it's time for me to buckle down and start, you know, uh, espousing the views of libertarianism that I really care about and try to explain them in a way that really resonates with people because things are going down the tubes fast. And if uh, I don't do it, who is going to do it? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's, no, That's how it goes. That's how a lot of a lot of folks get into it, right? And I mean, it sounds like you're kind of the, the policies you came to came from experience. and And I feel like a lot of times, like ideology ends up being informed by like tribe Right. And, and, you know, like the, the two party systems, they act like tribes like, all right, well I'm on team red or I'm on team blue. So like, I've got to follow the policies that go along with this and they say they're socialist, they say they're conservative, they say they're progressive, whatever it is. So therefore you're going to try to shoehorn your entire worldview into that, uh, you know, a uh, set of policies. But, but what's funny too, is that the, pol- uh, the, the parties themselves will constantly shift their ideologies to meet whatever, you know, need to happen to meet, which is, you know, where you get like the, the libertarian side is like, People want to be very consistent through it, but you know I do find like a lot of, a lot of folks come to that position just like you uh, through that lived experience, you know, like Larry Sharp, who was hosting this show yesterday uh he he came through that uh, to to a lot of his beliefs because of uh his lived experience being a consultant and being a business person and right. you know Gary Johnson was the one who spoke to him and, and made him see like oh well, here's how this applies in my life so so you you having your show. Um, and your YouTube channel, you're trying to to kind of bring that lived experience into um, you know the the viewers and you're also interviewing candidates too, and we'll get to that in a minute. but you, you sound like you kind of had some specific examples there. you're like, oh well, you have to bring extra equipment into the swamp that w- are you able to talk about what you do much?
0: Yeah, so uh, I didn't go to college right out of high school. I started working. I got my I was working at a lumber yard and I got my uh, tractor trailer license there. And then I went into power line maintenance for about six or seven years. Um, and so I, I was mostly an equipment operator and I'd set poles. I didn't do a ton of line work. Um, so my, my work was on the ground, figuring out how we were going to get the machines in there. Uh, a lot of the times I'd be helping putting uh, mats in the swamp. They were just like these big wooden mats that we could drive the machines over um so there, there was a lot of environmental stuff and a lot of ordinances you had to deal with you had to make sure the poles were so far from the road that they were so far over property lines like all, all this stuff you had to deal with um and the oversight uh the over the the management from the utility companies that we were working for because we were contractors they'd have us uh, come in and do their stuff, you know, there, there would just be a few engineers deciding how we were going to do this giant job. And none of those engineers had ever touched a shovel before. They had no idea how anything worked in real life. And so their expectations weren't in line with reality. Um, and then they'd show up and they'd be upset about, you know, how we were doing something. And we would say, well, we literally can't do it any other way. And they would say, I don't care, you need to make this work So, you know, it was just, it was completely ridiculous. And the way they wanted us to do a lot of things would cause more harm. So a great example is the mats I'm talking about. You know, those make sense in a true wetland where your machine will sink into the swamp. You need these wooden mats so you don't sink. But then they started changing the definition of what a wetland was. Suddenly a wetland is somewhere, you know, if there's a puddle, in the middle of May there, then that's considered a wetland. So we'd have literally miles of these things sometimes outside the swamp. So you'd have to bring in thousands of mats. You'd have to burn way more diesel for all the trucks, bringing the mats out. And then they're, you know, 16 feet wide and they're just sitting there uh, and you can't always pull them right out immediately. So sometimes they'd sit there for a couple months. They'd kill everything that they're sitting on top of. Wow. And instead of just driving a machine in and getting the work done and then just putting the mats where you need them and getting out another great example, I was picking a, uh, a shipping container up once, um, to load onto a trailer. And so I was standing on top of the shipping container and it was eight feet wide, 20 feet long, giant platform. And I was just hooking up the chains and this safety guy came across the yard screaming at me like, you need a harness on. And, uh, I said, uh, you know, I'm six feet tall. If I have a five-foot lanyard on, I'm going to fall off and hit the ground and I won't roll quite as far. He said, I don't care. You need to figure it out. And there was nowhere to attach a harness. So he said, get a step ladder out then because that was compliant instead oh, of man. standing on top of this giant platform. It's about checking
1: would- the boxes. It's not about like using common sense to to actually protect your safety um all right so we're we're coming up on a break uh, real quick so thank you so much reed for joining us here today on radio for new york we appreciate everyone listening in today thank you so much we're going to be back in just a few minutes talk to you soon listening to Radio Free New York. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are here with uh, Reed Coverdale, and and we we're just talking about before the before the break. We we're talking about some of the, the the regulations that you end up seeing on the job, and you know, just it feels like some of these regulations, like they maybe they're well intentioned. You know, I'm sure they're well intentioned. They're meant to, to keep people safe. But like common sense ends up getting thrown out the window and ends up being about checking a box rather than actually keeping you safe. And so, so these types of experience kind of informed where you came from, right? So, uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I can't help but think like, again, what, what you're talking about, like, if if you're laying down all these wooden things, and you're end up kind of destroying these, like, maybe sort of kind of wetlands, too, and you're, you're, you're burning up more diesel and you're doing more stuff. You, you end up having a negative impact on the environment. And uh, yeah, it's it's again, I, I look at these regulations and that, that's kind of where I'm, I, I'm coming from too. In a lot of cases too, is I look at like the intentions of what government meant to accomplish and I'm saying, no, no, you're doing the opposite in many cases.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I had, you know, Michael Madrid, who's also from New York. Um, yeah. I had him on my show and we talked about this subject and what he says a lot is simplify that's what the government needs to do because the more complicated regulations get or rules get uh the less sense they make first of all but then also the more the oligarchs can twist them to protect themselves and you know screw over the little guy and i think that's really true so i don't believe in absolute zero regulations but um you know (laughs) when you just keep throwing rules and laws at every incident and thinking that that will stop another stupid person from doing something stupid, you're not dealing in with in reality you're making, you're actually encouraging stupidity and you're, you're making a culture of dumb compliant people instead of aware, um, you know, safety sensitive people. Uh, Because if you train people to put all, to put up all these safety blocks that, don't necessarily do anything to keep them safe, but they give them a placebo, then they're actually not going to pay attention as much anymore. I don't know if you know Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs. He used to yeah. talk about this concept, safety third. And, uh, you know, it sounds crazy when you first hear it, but when you listen to him talk about it, if you're a working class man like I am, who's been out in the field, you realize that that's totally true. The, the less you place safety on the individual and the more you place it on the system, the less safe and the less intelligent people are going to be.
1: No, I mean, that is fascinating. And again, you know, like my, my grandfather's an electrician, The same thing. Like he's trying to make sure that he can keep himself safe and he can keep his guys safe. But like, yeah, you have to have that individual awareness of like, here's what to grab and not grab and here's what you can't touch. And and just checking off the boxes doesn't always do it. Right. Um, so again, you, you end up with this, this myriad of rules that it, some some far off uh, person has said that don't apply in all situations. And to me, I, I look at these situations, too. And I'm like, all right, if, if someone in Washington is making this rule that applies all across the entire country, there's situations in Western New York. They ain't going to apply the same way in Utah. They ain't going to apply the same way in, in Washington state. So, like, how do we bring this down, bring it down to common sense and to make sure that there's like individual responsibility in in these situations, both like in the workplace and elsewhere, too?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the only way this country survives, because it seems like every calamity we run into, it's because of central planning, it's because of this one size fits all solution. You know, that's what we've seen with COVID-19, the reactions have been singular, you know, everyone needs to do the same thing. Well, maybe not everyone needs to do the same thing. You know, maybe every state, every town, every person is different, like you said, um, and I, I, this is another place where in my life recently, I've just seen no common sense. You know, I've been in the store and, uh, <laughs> there are those, uh, squares they have on the floor where you're supposed to stand oh, six yeah, yeah. Feet apart. and they're six feet apart, you know, laterally, but then, uh, you look over and it, the box is two feet away from you. <laughs> so can the disease not go sideways can it can only go forward in one direction that's that's the only way you can go no and that's another one that was like well we technically
1: we space people out in line six feet apart so it's good like, no, you're, you're standing right i can i can touch you over here it's still too close now that 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 type of silliness is is what gets me and it's again it's about compliance it's not about using your head and 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 common sense um no and uh oh what 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 was I going to ask you about? Uh, oh, um, you know, you, you'd mentioned too, you, you were talking with like some of the candidates like uh, Michael Madrid uh, down, uh, he's down in New York city, right? Right. Yeah. So, so he's down. So you, you've been seeing, um, you know, a number of libertarian candidates. So you, you've started speaking with them. Uh, you know, what, what are you, what are you seeing across the country? What, what type of themes are you seeing among like third party candidates that you've had the opportunity to speak with?
0: Yeah, I've had a dozen or so people on. And what it has really shown me listening to all of them and listening to the issues state to state and listening uh, about, you know, the voters in each state, libertarianism is really the only inclusive ideology because if you want to be a conservative or if you want to be a liberal or a progressive or whatever, you are demanding conformity from your, you know, from your fellow citizens where libertarianism is completely different because it's just you live your life, I live my life. And then if you look at the platform specifically, there are ideas from the right and the left. I can't think of any other platform that combines those two. You, know, you either have more extreme left or moderate left or you know, extreme right or moderate right. We're the only ones that really have something for everybody. Um, so talking to a lot of these candidates, like specifically Brad Barron, who's running against Mitch McConnell and Amy McGrath, Uh, You know, there was a pretty prominent race there with uh, Charles Booker, who is a progressive. And Brad Barron can reach out to those people because he, you know, when it comes to the war on drugs and criminal justice reform, things like that, he can really give them an option that Amy McGrath doesn't necessarily. And then true fiscal conservatives, he can reach out to where Mitch McConnell has totally turned his back on them uh, and, you know, (laughs) gone uh, gone on board with the CARES Act and other types of uh, bailouts and, you know, f- complete fiscal irresponsibility throughout the years. So it really gives them a place to reach people all around.
1: Yeah, no. And, that, and that's a, that's a good point. You know, like Mitch McConnell and the Republican party, uh, I mean, I, sorry, sorry, listen, I know many of you listening today are Republicans too. Like just the, the fiscal responsibility has totally gone out the window. Just just 100%. We're not even pretending anymore. You know, I I started paying attention a lot more to politics around like the Tea Party age. You know, it's coming out of college then. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is what like Republicanism is about. It's about fiscal responsibility and personal liberty. That's not not at all. We've the the party had moved away from that, you know, and, and maybe never was even there right? It would just, this paid lip service of that. And the Brad Barron thing too, if you guys haven't heard of this race, uh, he he just raised, what he had to raise, like another $100,000 and he's going to be in the debates with uh, right. Mitch McConnell and uh, what was his name? Amy? Was Amy, name? McGrath. Amy McGrath. Uh, so yeah, if you haven't seen any of uh, uh, Brad Barron's interviews, like he's great, uh, great candidate, good representative of the party. So I'm excited to see how that ends up turning out. That's going to be awesome. Um, are, are you seeing any other like kind of common themes among libertarian candidates that you're interviewing and in? like what like because you're, you're, you're talking to folks across the country. So like what are what are voters concerned about in, in a lot of these places where, or what are libertarians candidate libertarian candidates saying that voters are concerned about.
0: So it seems to me mostly to be the economy and criminal justice reform, which we both have, um, you know, the libertarians have a unique position on both of those things. And we can blame both the Democrats and Republicans for making those situations so much worse than they had to be. Um, so that's where I see the most focus, uh, probably especially on criminal justice reform just because of all the riots and you know all the shootings we've seen from the police and everything. So um, you know the ideas of ending qualified immunity, ending civil asset forfeiture, uh, ending the war on drugs, you know there's a whole list of policies that, We propose that the Democrats and Republicans sometimes give lip service to, but then you see their omnibus bills that roll out and they only do half measures and they're ones that they know that nobody on the other side is going to vote for. So they can look like they're trying to do something, uh, you know, productive, but they realize it's not going to pass. So it's just a useless gesture where we're the only ones who say, no, we really need to pass these specific things. And that will really change the system.
1: Yeah, policy-wise, like specifically, I saw this with with the Democrat House bill uh, for the Justice and Policing Act, which you know uh, Congressman Amash called that like a messaging bill. He's like, "Hey, look, there's so much stuff in this here, like that it's it's meant to show that Democrats are on the right side without ever intending to change policy because they knew it wasn't going to get through the Senate. Uh, They they didn't attempt to make it even bipartisan. And then you know the Senate ended up kind of doing something very similar. They picked a a bill. It seemed like Tim Scott was kind of leading the way on that one, and they knew that the Democrats wouldn't pass it in the House. It was a messaging bill to show like they were sort of on the right side of things, maybe, but uh, not really. And there's no, it, it, nothing's going to happen now. Nothing right. at all. There's not any of the police reforms that, that people are talking about that people are advocating for on the federal level, probably not going to happen. When you have bills like uh, the ending Qualified Immunity Act from Congressman Mosh, which would do one specific thing, and, and it doesn't even have the opportunity to get voted up or down because Speaker Pelosi doesn't want it to come up. And when the speaker doesn't want something to happen, it doesn't happen.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to give a shout out to Rand Paul here, even though he's a Republican. But yeah. he uh, he has put forward some of the best criminal justice legislation I've ever read in my life. And like you said, it's just very concise. Uh, there's nothing about windmills or corporate bailouts in it. You know, it's yeah. just like a two-page bill it's addressing one issue at a time. That's what we need.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, I feel like that's like half the, the issue with Congress is we want to do like these, they, they want to do these giant omnibus bills that, that, that cover a hundred different topics and two or three of those are poison pills for a number of people enough to destroy the coalition instead of picking like, all right, we can, we can tackle X, Y, and Z issues in that, you know, 75% of the American public agrees on, and most of Congress agrees on, let's just do that. No, instead it ends up becoming a big thing. And then, the bills fail. And then the Democrats fundraise off of it and the Republicans fundraise off of it. And like, look, see, the only way that we're going to be able to uh, get this priority passed is by kicking those other guys out of Congress. Please give us, you know, the maximum donation amount and help our party. And that and that, I, am, am I wrong?
0: No, i no, but that's yeah. why I'm laughing because it's so accurate.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's how it ends up going. All right, so so we're about out of time for this middle segment. Uh, so again, we're talking to Reed Coverdale, who's uh, the naturalist capitalist, uh, about just kind of stuff going on around the country with the libertarian movement and libertarian candidates. Reed, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be back in just a few minutes with more Radio Free New York. Thanks so much for joining us. Radio Free New York. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm Kevin Wilson, your host for today, and I'm joined by Reed Coverdale, the naturalist capitalist. Uh, again, shout That's out cool. to all my friends out at, uh, at WISL, of course, the folks listening here today uh, at our show. We're here till 1 p.m. I am not live today, but still send your comments, send your emails, uh, contact at RadioFreeNewYork.com. I do read your feedback. I do listen to you guys. I will respond to your emails and your comments when you send them in. So I really appreciate it. And of course, shout out to our friends at WACK in Newark and W E N Y the Patriot. Again, send us, send us an email, give us feedback. Love to hear. We we got a lot of feedback when we covered um the, the police shooting out in Wisconsin the other day. So I know you guys are listening. I know you guys are engaged. I know some of you didn't like what I had to say, and that's fine. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys sending me more information. And we'll probably touch on that topic again on a future date. But for today, we're talking to Reed Coverdale again, the naturalist capitalist, and uh, Reed, you uh, were, were talking to me uh, before the show uh, about the economy, and and you 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 you're saying that the economy you you think is not in trouble just because of COVID. So, uh, explain that.
0: Yeah, so I mean this this is why my name is the naturalist capitalist, and I, I've got to do a really short backstory here. Um, As I said, I was working on Tulsi Gabbard's campaign uh, this last primary season, and I had a lot of disagreements with her, but the last push I had into the Libertarian Party was through their economic platform because I I wasn't 100% on board with that until about, you know, five months ago, and it it fully pushed me all the way in. Um, So, you know, she dropped out, and then I was listening a lot to Peter Schiff Um, And I had been listening to him since November, and he was making me even more skeptical about supporting her the whole time just because of all the stuff he was saying that made so much sense. And he was warning the entire time that, you know, the economy is going to fall apart soon. The economy is going to fall apart. You know, we just started quantitative easing again, and the Fed is going to need a reason to pull the plug and just, you know, throw a ton of cash at the economy. Just watch. It's coming and, uh, you know, then in uh, March, when she dropped out, I started paying attention to other things that were going on. I was really listening to him. And then, you know, the coronavirus started going crazy. And then we saw the CARES Act come in. And we saw, you know, the Republicans and Democrats who can't get along on anything. They suddenly all rubbed elbows to get together and pass that. And Donald Trump signed it into law. And the, one of the only guys who was standing up to it was Thomas Massey, You know, and he was saying this is the biggest transfer of wealth from the middle class to the richest in the country in the history of mankind, which was true. And um, so I had been, you know, paying attention to this stuff for months and then I saw it all unfolding before my eyes and things that I had learned about in 2008 with the uh, housing crisis, you know, and what the government did back then. I was seeing them repeat all the same exact mistakes. And they had this perfect scapegoat that we have to do this to, you know, save the common people from this disease (laughs) where if you look at the bills that have gone through, what actually goes to the people is so minimal. I mean, most of it goes to corporations, special interest groups, uh, you know, and then the one that hasn't passed the heroes act that the house voted on, you know, that would go to state governments. None of it is, um, very little of it is direct cash payments to people. And that's what they use as a catalyst to say, oh, we have to do this to bail out the little guy or they're going to get crushed. Um, and going back to the idea that the economy was bad before coronavirus anyway, you know, if you look at all of our monetary policies that we've had, like artificially low interest rates are an especially good example that encourage people to spend money they don't have, to take out loans that they don't really deserve to be able to get. And buy stuff they can't afford, and so they're living on payments, and then prices become inflated, you know, how the housing bubble, uh, automobiles go through the roof, like everything just becomes expensive and people don't care because they don't care if they own something, they just care if they can afford their monthly payment. So the result is they have, you know, 10 payments going on, they don't own a thing, and if they're without a job for more than two weeks, they're sunk. And so we were already living on this really tedious economy with a higher unemployment rate than Donald Trump was willing to admit. And, um, you know, there were a lot of shady businesses that have been bailed out in the past that were not doing well in the current times. And I think the Federal Reserve just needed an excuse to throw all this cash at the economy. And the coronavirus was just the perfect scapegoat And, uh, you know, now Donald Trump is blaming the greatest economy in world history that he created going, you know, going down the twos because of this disease. And a lot of people are are buying it, you know, and, but if you explain that to them, if you talk to the average person, ask them how much of your, how many of your possessions did you own before this crisis hit? You know, how many payments were you on? Um, How... How many dollars away from a crisis were you? Why do you think that is? And then you can lay out like all these policies we've had. you can really get them to realize that we've been living on an elevated lifestyle that is not in line with reality of our current wealth as a country. And, uh, you know, that, 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 it just really hit me. Uh, And that's, that, that was actually the driving force for me to start my YouTube channel and start my Twitter page and, when you can show those facts to people, it catches on and people listen to you and uh, it's been successful so far. You know, I've got a lot of followers be, because I'm I'm telling the truth, I think. And it's from what I've seen. And as I said earlier, you know, I know a lot of, uh, I know a lot of people who live this lifestyle. Like I said, back at the beginning of the show, I arrive at my views based on what I see in life. And I, when I was at work, I saw people who couldn't afford anything, but they would take payments out on stuff. And I was always wondering how can they get all these payments for things they can't afford. And you follow the, you follow the trail back. It goes back to the government and our monetary policy that has enabled everyone to become a slave to the system where they have to work a job that they don't necessarily like for pay. That's not very good. Just so that they can, you know, pay their bills. And uh, you know, it's just, it's a house of cards and it's coming crashing down and uh it's been very interesting to watch
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i i can i can see that like for sure like there's there's many parts of the economy that are very fragile that that a lot of people are living on credit, and there's like there's easy ways to do it like right now i can get a zero percent interest loan on buying a t-shirt uh and, and and you know it makes it easier and like as someone who's in digital marketing and e-commerce that's kind of great for me uh, you know, I sell my products, right. But you know, like, if people are doing that with thing after thing, after thing, after thing, and government policy makes it even easier to facilitate those types of transactions, it becomes very fragile when you are living paycheck to paycheck. And I think there's a study that came out, like end of last year, that said, uh, like, Americans have, uh, like, on average, like less than a $1,000 in savings. And, and like, even that, like, I know a lot of folks who are like, savings. No, not at all. I have nothing. I just have debt. You know, I just catch up to my credit cards, you know, every once in a while. And that feels good. Right. Um, you know, and, and I know, I know a lot of folks who are like that. And that's uh that's a dangerous position to be in. So when you get a crisis like Corona, you know, that, that brings out all of those, you know, fragilities and, and suddenly a crisis that might've been like mild is now exacerbated 10 20 fold because, of everything that existed before Now, I, I though, although I will push back, like obviously Corona did cause some actual impact on the economy because people weren't showing up. People were not showing up to stuff, right? Like some restaurants, they're not open because, you know, governor Cuomo here in New York says you can't open right, right. now. Now they can open a little bit, but some folks they're not showing up because they're nervous. So that's part of it. We'll acknowledge that. That's fine. But I, you know, I think to your point though, it's like, you know, this, this just exposed the weaknesses
0: that are already there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Peter Schiff puts it really well. This was the pin that pricked the bubble. It wasn't like a five thousand pound weight that came crashing down on the strongest economy in the history of the world, like Trump wants us to believe.
1: <laughs> no, so, is it, yeah. So, so the the Trump Trump position that uh, President Trump's position that this was a great economy and it was just ruined by this thing, saying a bunch of nonsense, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I uh, when. Obama was president, you know, Donald Trump was criticizing him for a lot of phony numbers like the unemployment numbers, but then when Trump gets in there, instead of fighting the Federal Reserve and, you know, fighting for a a real economy like he said he was going to in 2016, he just embraced it because, you know, Donald Trump likes to be popular and it's a lot of work to uh, fight the federal reserve and take on unpopular ideas so he's just like ah okay this is working i'll go with it but once you claim it you have to claim it when it falls to pieces too but he's he's not he doesn't want to do both he wants to just claim the good both sides
1: that's what politicians love to do they love to uh you know look like they're doing something and then claim the successes and blame someone else for the failures that's 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 the key to being a politician right that's how that's how we do things yeah uh, (laughs) right We're uh, running out of time for this segment. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us here today on Radio Free New York. We will be back in just a few minutes. Talk to you soon.
0: Radio Free New York.
1: Welcome back to Radio Free New York. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Kevin Wilson, your host for today, uh, and we are joined again by Reed Coverdale. And, and normally we do Fake News Friday, but guys, I, I didn't prepare that many, and and I, I kind of sprung this on Reed, so uh, you know he didn't have Fake News Friday items too. Not his fault. My fault. Totally. I I'll save him for next week. We'll, we'll have we'll have some more fake news next week. But speaking of fake news, though, we're talking about the unemployment numbers and and kind of what what we're looking at with. Uh, with the health of the economy. And there's something you said that made me think of like, whenever I look at like, is our economy healthy? Is our economy good? You know, I don't look at just the unemployment numbers because the unemployment number is of course the people who are actively seeking out jobs and, and requesting unemployment. What else you got to look at is the labor force participation rate. Uh, Do do you want to explain that a little bit?
0: Well, I mean, you kind of just laid it out right there. Um, When (laughs) you just point to the people who are on unemployment, that is not representative of everybody who isn't working. Um, And, you know, Trump would always point to just unemployment, you know, specifically, oh, look at black unemployment, look at this unemployment. And, um, you know, a lot of people would point out, no, there are a lot more people who don't have work and they've given up looking for a job um, but, you know, that's not a popular item to bring up when you're president. So you might no. as well just throw the unemployment numbers. <laughs>
1: yeah, President Obama would do the same thing. He'd be like, hey, look, uh, the unemployment numbers are going down. And, and you know, like, I would be looking at this like, yeah, but, like, the labor force participation rates going down, too. Like, a lot more people have just decided that they're, they're not working or they're not telling the government that they're working, which means that they're either, you know, like, just collecting benefits, living off of someone else, or they're working in the black market, you know, so th- I guess that's an option, too. Um, but yeah, now that, that, that economic, um, you know, uh, stat is, is really part of the underlying fragility of the system. Again, that we talked about, like if you have a bunch of these folks who aren't participating in the normal economy anymore, like that, that should be setting off warning bells. And that, and that's what we've seen, you know, in the last several years too, we, we've seen a lot of people who are just not working at all. And again, I, I actually on, on the economy stuff, like I don't like to blame the president. I, and I've said this before on the show, like it's not just President Trump who is making right. the economy good and making the economy bad. It wasn't President Obama before. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a lot of government policies that are making it happen. Um, but so like how do we how do we move ahead in this system? Is it possible to move ahead um, You know, with, using the mechanisms of government we have now?
0: Yeah, I mean, so first of all, you're totally right that Trump is not responsible for the good or the bad. Uh, he just likes to claim the good and doesn't like to claim the bad. And so that's <laughs> that's really what I'm attacking him for. But um, obviously, we need systemic change, specifically with the Federal Reserve intervening with the market, propping up bad businesses, uh, as I said earlier, giving us artificially low interest rates. I think that's the number one thing that it does that is completely gutted the middle class because you know there's been this idea that if you know the low interest rates and government backed loans and all these things are helpful to the consumer but they're not they're helpful to the producer because then the producer can jack the prices up as high as they want and the government guarantees the loans Uh, so you know then the (laughs) the consumer gets stuck with the bill so we've seen that just get escalated over the last 30 years uh, with college, with, you know, as I was saying earlier, housing and uh, automobiles. I mean, like pretty much everything is getting more expensive, but people don't care. They're, they're just so uh, isolated in their payment that they got to make every month. They're not looking at the big picture. So there are systemic issues we need to fix, but, you know, the likelihood of actually fixing them is really low. So what people need to do is they need to just stop buying stuff that they don't need. They need to not go to college unless you really need a degree for the field you're going into. Um, You know, I own a 1994 pickup truck uh, that I just swapped the engine in a few months ago and it's got over 300,000 miles on it. And it's been to 49 States. Who cares? (laughs) You know, like
1: as long as it gets you, as long as it still works, right. It accomplishes its mission. It gets you the work, gets you around, right?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I I don't buy fancy clothes. I don't, uh, you know, I I don't buy stuff I don't need. I save my money. I own everything that I have. I've never been in debt in my entire life. And I have more in savings than most people have in debt. That's not to brag. That's just to say I've lived intelligently and I've been able to, you know, I've, I've been able to take extended vacations, travel all over the country, uh, throughout this coronavirus deal, I was actually unemployed because I was in between jobs, but I was fine. I didn't have to worry about anything because I just set my life up to be successful. Uh, so the government is going to screw you over. And there are these systemic issues that if we could get in charge and we could change, it'd be great. But people on an individual level, they have to be smarter than the system that's being shoved in your face. You know, Try to own things that you have instead of Uh, bragging that you've got an $80,000 boat in your front yard that you take out once a year and you're making payments on it and you're a slave. And then if you miss one week at work, you know, you have to sell something to be able to make your payments like that. That to me does not sound like a successful life. And that's not a capitalist lifestyle because a capitalist owns capital, which means you have, you actually own money or things of value that are in your possession. Uh, If you, have something that you owe payments on and you stop making the payments, the bank is going to repossess it. It's not yours. You're not a capitalist. You're fooling yourself. So be a capitalist, save, invest, and own, you know, and that's the way to be successful. So that's what people should do.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's not capitalist. It's like a consumer's lifestyle and it, and it feels good and you have all this stuff and it's a nice thing, but you do have to take that in individual responsibility too. It's a, like part of the economy as a well whole is like kind of our our individual actions added up to like a bigger whole, right? So so having that, you know, and taking that individual responsibility and then not being upset to like, hey, like if we can contribute to making a stronger economic system, the government's gonna have to be less likely to go and justify a bunch of interventions later that often end up making things worse. And that's, that's what it is. It's all very well-intentioned justifications. We got to save the economy. we got to help people. And that's what like the the CARES Act was too, right? Like the, the, the stim, I wouldn't really call it stimulus, but the like the $1,200 checks everyone got right. Like that was like, well, because we had a fragile economy, because people are at work, because people don't have savings, you don't want people to starve. Right. And I get that. I'm sympathetic to that argument. The PPP system, the payment protection plan system, it's kind of the same thing. Well, we don't want these businesses to go down. The Businesses don't have saving. The businesses are fragile. Well, we got to bail them out with paycheck protection. That's what it is. And then and then there's the special carve-outs too, which is, oh man, th- those ones get me a lot more riled up. Like the, the airline carve-outs, those right. ones are just those are ridiculous. I think those are a lot harder to defend, even for folks who are you know, maybe in favor of the CARES Act. But, But again, the point is, is like, having that individual responsibility and, and doing things that you can to make sure that you're not so dependent on like how the government is interacting with the economy, whether or not the economy is fragile overall. That's a, That seems like pretty decent life advice generally. So <laughs> appreciate, I, I hope our listeners appreciate that. You know, I, I, I do. It's a, it's a good idea. Not, not something I'm always perfect at, but it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, and, and actually, you know, one of the other things you said, because we got a, a couple minutes left, the education system. Uh, you know, I was actually I was on a, a board of trustees at a at a college for a while. And that, that's one of those things I see directly is that it's so easy to get a loan for college. They, the federal government makes it so easy that it, it makes it really easy for um, these colleges to to raise prices like, well, you know, well, the students will be able to access the money. They'll, they'll get grants or they'll get loans and it's fine. And, and we've, we've, you're right. We've built this culture where like it becomes a necessity to have a college degree or a perceived necessity to have a college degree and colleges are able to raise prices because they want to keep their doors open. They will also want to spend more money to attract more students and the government's given everyone basically free money. And when you're 18, you're like, yeah, who cares? I'll ten $10,000 loan, whatever. It's not, it's not real to me. Um, yeah. But we, we you know, we built the system that was built on a bunch of good intentions, easy money, and like, this is an investment in you. And now suddenly we have tens of thousands, millions of, of, of college graduates who are like, oh man, I'm in so much debt now. I can't possibly get ahead that right. they're not able to save and they're not able to participate in the economy. And that's in part by government policy that made it easy for you to make bad decisions.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean- This is how I can really connect with a lot of people who would say they're on the left because they're angry that, you know, all the the top is getting all this money. And I tell them, yes, you're right, they are. But it's because of these government policies. They make it so easy for people to go into debt. And the government pays these loans up front. You know, it's not like the colleges are waiting to get their money or any other industry that the government backs the loan for. They're not waiting for you to pay them back. The government's waiting for you to pay them back. So all these people are getting rich off this Ponzi scheme, and uh, you were totally right when you said it's a perceived notion that we need to have college degrees. Um, because I don't have a college degree. By the time I was twenty-four years old, I was making over a hundred thousand dollars doing a construction job. You know, fixing power lines. Um, and all my friends who had graduated high school, they were in debt. Half of them weren't in the field that they went to college for. They were you know, working a little bit above minimum wage, trying to pay off a $50,000 loan. (laughs) So, you know, who's who's successful in that image, you know, and um, so it's, it's really, as I said, we got to change the system, but before the system changes, we got to wake people up and stop them from uh, forcing themselves into situations that make their lives worse. Because when, at the end of the day, it does come down to personal choice and you've got to, choose to be smart
1: so. yeah absolutely all right so if they do want to hear more about that uh, Reed, where can people find you
0: yeah so uh, right now my YouTube channel is mostly interviewing candidates but it will shift to more of these ideas once the elections over uh, so follow me on YouTube I am naturalist capitalist and then on Twitter I am at Reed Coverdale or naturalist capitalist is my username you'll find me on both of those platforms
1: fantastical reed thank you so much for joining us today on radio free new
0: york thanks for having me on
1: absolutely all right folks so we're out for the day Uh, we will be back monday same time same place here in radio free new york have a wonderful weekend
0: take care